Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf, and I am in our studio in New York City as always happens on a Thursday afternoon, or often, with Ryan Goodman, the co-host of our Thursday afternoon. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. Uh, Ryan is back from a a trip to what used to be called the United Kingdom. That's right, the pre-Brexit England. It was your pre-Brexit trip, and and did you find everybody deeply nervous? Deeply. (laughs) Deeply. Especially the lawyers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of lawyers, we have... Um, in addition to Ryan, who's a lawyer, we have Rosa Brooks of uh, Georgetown University Law School, who spent her vacation uh, driving across the United States. It seems like you had spent more of your vacation, Rosa, <laughs> driving than you actually spent. It felt like that on my way home because I had two flat tires. On oh. <laughs> so I got to enjoy a couple of extra days on the Indiana-Ohio state border at a Best Western Hotel. At the, at the Mike Pence rest stop in Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Ryan, lawyers should be thrilled. Brexit is going to be so good for lawyers. That's right. A lot Think of, work. of the law review articles <laughs> that are going to be written. Think of the litigation that is going to ensue. This is the, the, the bigger the catastrophe for Europe and the United Kingdom, the bigger the boon for lawyers. Very true. That's what I'll tell our students. Yeah, no, he's beaming. He's, he couldn't, yeah. He couldn't, See, I'm trying, just trying to cheer you up. He couldn't be happier. You're playing your uh, an unaccustomed role of cheering people up here. Um, I also understand, I understand, Rosa, you stopped at every dog park between Wyoming and I Washington. Did, yes, <laughs> um, because I was traveling with my dog, and, and she and I are going to co-author a book, and it's going to be a bestseller. It's going to be called Dog Parks of America by Scout. Rosa. Uh, nice of you to give a uh, scout top billing. Well, uh, she is the dog. Well, there's no question about <laughs> that. But um, uh, actually, my wife has a whole theory of these things. She once got very deeply involved in the creation of a dog park in Montreal, Canada, has spent a lot of time studying dog parks and sees dog parks as the sort of ultimate analogy for social behavior with people. And that, you know, sort of the way they sort of sniff each other out and an alpha emerges (laughs) and sort of so she's constantly making references to. So you basically she basically thinks that dog parks exist so that the dogs can do a sociological study of of human interaction. Exactly. They're modeling human behavior for our benefit. Uh huh. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? It makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Well, you know, it should make sense in the context of the broader period in which we live. You know, I remember, as they, as they say on the internet, I'm old enough to remember, uh, when August was the time that nothing happened. <laughs> um, which, which, is, which is to say, well, by the way... nothing wh- happened unless you count global catastrophe, efforts to buy Finland, um, 
you know, major bombs in Afghanistan. It's unless you count catastrophe, nothing happened. Yeah, well, no, and that's a good point. And and as I even as I said those words, because we talk about the dog days of summer and so forth. World War One started in August, and and <laughs> and as 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 uh, you know, we we know, and 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 I also recall the uh, Russian financial crisis, and we can all remember back to to that. Also, took place in August. But Ryan, one of the things that happened this August was the President of the United States um, said he was God. Any comment? <laughs> Um, <laughs> should have well, stayed he away. He was the chosen one. <laughs> he didn't actually sure. say he was God. He just suggested that he was anointed by God. No, he did. He he also quoted somebody, a radio personality. Oh, right. That's who, true. Who right. said that the Israelis viewed him as God. Right. I was deeply right. disturbed that that guy went to the same college I went to. <laughs> um <laughs> Although it was the same college Barack Obama went to. I want to know, how many Israelis do you think think he's God? Like one and a half? Well, it depends on if Jared is in Israel or not, I guess. But <laughs> um, but D- David Friedman, our ambassador to Israel, who's easily one of the worst ambassadors we've ever had. Um, but we're letting you off the hook here, Ryan. I'd like you to comment on the fact that the president has called himself the chosen one. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I was actually uh, on Anderson. Yeah, Ryan, what do you think of that? Yeah, what do I think? Um, right. I mean, it's obviously like imagine if uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton had done the exact same thing, all the gestures looking up to the heavens as they said that, um, would the evangelical community um, let them off the hook with the idea that it's just a tongue in cheek or humor? Um, and and I, and I do think that what's kind of remarkable about all of it is it's a, it's an inflation of himself. So he actually likes the idea that he's this the big guy. Um, and in fact, it's coming from a very small um, place. Um, so I think that even this you kind mean of a, his hands, it's coming from his little tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think he or his little tiny shrunken heart. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad that's where you ended up with that. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah, but it's the image of the top dog, or it's the image of, isn't it remarkable that he has this uh, sense of self uh, that is so large? And it's actually the opposite, I think, is that he is he's such a deeply insecure person. Uh, and that's really its true source. So R- Rosa should be feeling sorry for the president and concerned about his low self-esteem. <laughs> what should we do about the president's low self-esteem, Rosa? I think intensive inpatient care for <laughs> a very long time is probably required. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I think Ryan's right. I mean, I think it, it's pathetic. It's so sad. You know, if he weren't president and destroying the lives of thousands of people by the policies, thousands of millions of people by the policies he he puts into place, it would be it would be funny and it would be sad. Um, as it is, it's just enraging uh, and tragic. Uh, true. So you know, something else is enraging and tragic. You know, I'm complaining about August, and you know, nothing happens usually. Now everything's happening, and you know, the list of everything that's happening. We have the complete destruction of the planet earth with fires in the amazon that can be seen fires. from space yep. fires in the arctic melting 
ice pack in Greenland, which we were talking about until the president talked about wanting to buy Greenland. We have the Russians with exploding nuclear missiles that are nuclear on both ends, by the way, you know, nuclear engines as well as potentially, you know, nuclear payloads. Um, we have tension in the Persian Gulf. We have Chinese troops massing at the border of Hong Kong. We have, I, I think there have been six North Korean missile test this month. Mm. Um, but you know what hasn't happened this month? Nothing has happened on investigations involving the president of the United States. I mean, very little. You know, the, the president of the United States was, we seem to recall, once involved in this thing with Russia. They got him elected. Um, he defended them. He obstructed justice. He rewarded them. And by the way, among the things that happened this month, just a couple of days ago, the president of the United States said, why don't we put Russia back in the G7? Right. Which we, you know, suggested they leave once they, you know, entered Crimea without an invitation. And so we've got all of this stuff. We've got now 132 or some number of members of Congress who are sort of behind the idea of doing an impeachment investigation. And nothing is happening. And so the question that I ask you, Ryan, uh, and that I will come to you on, Rosa, is what can we expect? Are we, are we you know, is this thing just going to like peter out and we're going to be so into the election that we're not paying attention to it? Is that Nancy Pelosi's game or, or, or Bill Barr's game? Um, or is there likely to be a change in the rhythm of this whole thing as we get into the fall? Um. So I think these are all about probabilities because there are different scenarios that are likely, not all equally likely. Uh, so I think one is the this just fizzles. It's not what the public is as interested in. Um, they're much more interested in uh, gun control issues, uh, health care, uh, climate. And the, and the picture yesterday of the four Kardashian kids together for the first time. I see. I missed that. Yeah. Well, that was a big yeah. one. That was a big one. <laughs> um, so I think that's a quite likely scenario so that the polling just starts to dip um, in terms of even public support or interest in impeachment. On the other hand, um, I do think that there's, you know, that we've, we've passed this benchmark of a majority of the Democratic uh, members of the House in support of impeachment, and it's still growing. And in just the last few days, some of the senior leadership uh, in the House. So that seems like it might be going in a certain direction. And I think what could maybe really add to that are two factors. One, the litigation with Don McGahn. So if that actually succeeds, and that's the slow-going process of the litigation uh, in the sense that is it true that what has been represented, that the idea that um, the House could win the litigation at least at the federal district court level in October, uh, and could we actually then see Don McGahn uh, come before the Congress? I think that could be a, a game-changer. Um, and then the other piece of it that I think about quite a bit is um, Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, in a certain sense has already committed himself to saying that uh, this is a process and at the end of the process they will make a recommendation of one sort or another. Uh, and I don't know if he meant to get that far out in his um, discourse or rhetoric, uh, but uh, he seems to have said that. So I think... I wonder if what happens is the scenario is that the House Judiciary Committee does indeed vote articles of impeachment 
on the president, and therefore this is a president with an asterisk by his name, um, like uh, Nixon uh, in that sense. And that is an important uh, part of the, the, way in this, in, the way in which this unfolds. But it doesn't go f- much further than that. Do you have a different perspective on this, Rosa? No, not, not really. Uh, you know, I think the Nancy Pelosi camp is clearly still very anxious that uh, the, the I word will turn off moderates uh, or, or those fabled independents and swing voters, whoever, whoever they are. Um, and I, I, I have no idea. She may be right. She may be dead wrong. Uh, I mean, I think, I think, David, we've talked before about um, whether that should be the deciding factor. And I, and I think that we both agree that if we were the decision makers, we would say, you know, it's a risk that it's a risk that you have to take that the the integrity of our political system, the integrity of, of our our the, really the rule of law in this country requires going forward with the investigation and with uh, uh, impeachment proceedings, um, even if that means that some voters don't like it and run away and vote for vote for the the crook. Um, but but I, I think clearly that she still she still fears that it would be uh, bad for Democrats um, at the ballot box uh, come November 2020 um, to be to be having impeachment in all of the newspaper headlines. Um, and I we're, I think we're going to continue to see sort of skirmishing between Democrats who see, you know, who either just on principle say we have to go forward or those who may may not have uh, all the principles we would like them to have, but who feel vulnerable in their own districts to the, you know, progressive bloc who are the most likely to show up to vote uh, and who care deeply about this issue. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll continue to see a lot of sort of skirmishing between those camps and, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, but my guess, if I, if I had to put money on something, and I'm not a particularly good political prognosticator, but if I had to put money on something, I would put money on nothing dramatic happening on the impeachment front between now and November 2020. I have to tell you, you know, it it renders me very nearly, but not quite speechless. Because when you think about what has happened thus far, um, uh, and you th- then combine with that the fact that if there are no penalties, if the president's approach and that of Bill Barr and others to obstruct and impede uh, and derail ultimately this kind of investigation with the cooperation of members of the Democratic establishment results in a foreign power, an adversary, being able to intervene in our elections with the knowledge of a candidate, celebrated for it by the candidate, uh, achieves a goal that makes an impact on an election, and then they are not only defended by the candidate to the point of obstruction of justice, um, but they are rewarded by the candidate, whether it's 
entrance into the G7 or getting their way with Syria or getting out of the INF Treaty or uh, having the president of the United States kowtow to the president of Russia or attacking NATO or sowing dissension in Europe with allies in a variety of other areas or producing dysfunction in the United States through fractiousness and other kinds of things that were actually promoted by this disinformation campaign of the Russian military intelligence, um, then the message that we send is, here's the blueprint. Here's the roadmap. Here's how you do that. And I had this conversation um, that you may be aware of with uh, General James Clapper, the the or, oh, although I, I mentioned this to Corey Shockey on our last podcast that she was on, and she uh, reminded me I shouldn't refer to him as general anymore because he's not, he's retired. I should refer to him as general retired, I guess. Um, uh, James Clapper, but, but, you know, he said, well, no, the Russians are going to do this again and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans. Uh, And then I had a conversation today on our National Security um, Magazine podcast, which everybody should listen to with former acting CIA director Michael Morrell, And he noted that this was an assessment that came from the intelligence community. And they specifically mentioned all of those and then said, and others. And, and, and Morrell noted that, you know, intelligence analysts don't write words like, and others casually. And it was his speculation, which I thought was quite interesting that it might not even be just our adversaries who are intervening. It might be countries we view as allies but that, you know, it's kind of open season. And so it's not just, and forgive me, I said I was almost speechless, but I've just gone on longer than I usually do in this. It's not just that there was a, uh, um, uh, a, 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 a failure to do justice as it should have been done in this case, but that we are actually inviting worse. Um, in in 2020 and beyond. You know, Ryan, you're nodding, or your eyes are maybe you're nodding out. Jet lag? No, <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you've said, um, and uh, I also think, you know, just maybe this is the availability heuristic of thinking. What's happening right now or recently? The Rudy Giuliani. Um, back channel to the Ukrainian government that's happening. It's just which, a, which he said was aided by the State Department. That's right. So just, and he confirmed that to NBC today, um, that the state, he says the State Department basically uh, introduced him uh, to this person who's uh, a close ally of the president of the Ukraine and that he's trying to get dirt. The purpose of it is to get dirt on um, Joe Biden, uh, and that's uh, even being said explicitly. And it's once again, it's even repeating part of what happened in 2016, which is if you do it out overtly in, in front of the public, then it's harder to say, well, obviously that's illicit <laughs> um, because you wouldn't be doing it in that way. Um, and uh, it's just astonishing. So, And that is sending a signal. It's sending a signal not just to the Ukraine but to other uh, governments to say uh, we're, you know, we've got an open door here to – an invitation to assist um, the Trump campaign 
uh, win re-election. Um, and I also saw, just because I was trying to dig back into when it happened before, just a couple of months ago when Giuliani was first going to go directly to a flight to Ukraine instead of meeting them in Spain, and the uh, spokesperson for the Trump 2020 campaign was interviewed and said, you know, that he is not going uh, as a member of the campaign. It's not a part of the campaign. But if he comes back with good information, we'll see. Based well, on just the as the president said. The president right. said, if, if somebody comes to us with good information, you know, we'll take it. And this was after Mueller. That's after right. the Mueller. That's right. That's right. So it's just unbelievably extraordinary. And just to add one other one is... Um, Remember that moment where Bill Barr is asked in a congressional hearing, is it wrong for a uh, campaign to take information from a foreign government? And he doesn't answer. And then finally he answers, yes, if it's a foreign intelligence agency. <laughs> yeah, well, this is right. And intelligence agencies always walk around, by the way, with a big yellow vest and it says intelligence agency on it. So... You know, it couldn't be a lawyer or somebody worked for another company or, you know, it's, but it couldn't be a cutout. Right. Um, Ro Ro Rosa, you know, what do you think? I mean, we, we, we seem to be in a situation where as bad as 2016 was, everything we have done since then is, seems to be setting the stage for 2020 to be worse. Yeah. And to some extent, to some extent... I'm going to put the most, I'm going to, I'm going to try to take, uh, Corey's, uh, uh, tiara of optimism this week. To some extent, the, the most positive way to think about all of this is that we're, we're looking at some, these are growing pains, right? That we have, um, partly as a result of technologies that have emerged very, very rapidly. Um, you know, social media stuff that's, that's really, uh, you know, didn't exist 20 years ago, barely existed 10 years ago, and we don't know how to manage it. And it's created all these, all these uh, both sort of technical means and, and, and sort of legal gray areas that, that facilitate um, all kinds of nefarious in, uh, interventions, both from adversarial states um, and from domestic bad actors um, engaging in, you know, disinformation campaigns, misinformation campaigns, you know, et cetera, you name it. And that, yes, things may be worse this time around um, because, you know, ironically, the, one of you know, the bad things about publicity is that everybody thinks all the bad guys go, oh, hey, that's a pretty good idea. I should try that. And we've, we've, now, we've now kind of helpfully explained the extra to the world the extreme vulnerability um, both of our, our electoral systems and of uh, uh, the ways in which our culture turns out to be uh, ri ridiculously easy to manipulate um, using social media and other other methods. And and so we're going to, yes, it's going to be worse, but eventually we'll kind of catch up and figure this out. And, you know, Donald Trump cannot last forever. Most he can last another, whatever it is, five and a half years. Um, um, and we will you know, we will survive as long as we survive this, we will be able to eventually figure out uh, both, you know, legal and technical methods to make it much, much harder for this kind of foreign intervention. That's that's sort of the most the positive spin. Um, but, yeah, in the short term, in the election of 2020, I think it's going to be really bad. I think it's going to be really bad. You know, in, in, in some ways, I feel like the 
adversarial states are, are I'm not going to say they're the least of our problems, but I think the, the threat from, uh, you know, the Russian or North Korean or Chinese or whoever attempting to influence the outcome of the 2020 election is going to be absolutely rivaled by the threat of private actors, uh, you know, far right groups, white nationalist groups, et cetera, in the United States attempting to manipulate the election through the same, same precise channels. That was Rosa being optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I just sometimes you have to hold up a little sign like that. It's like being being sarcastic on Twitter. Nobody gets it. Well, to, to quote Kate, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. Um, and, you know, um, the good news with that is that someday we won't have to worry about this. Well, that that is optimistic. Um, so. Let me ask another question regarding this whole thing, because not only are we at risk of meddling, and that's the worst word. I wish that word had not gotten introduced into this, right? A you know, foreign in military intelligence unit systematically attacked the United States, sought to undermine the principal institution of our democracy, and did. And we call that meddling. You know, that's that's not meddling. That's an attack. But but, you know, that's one dimension of this. But it's only one dimension of this, because a consequence of it was then a systematic effort by those in power in the United States to subvert our judicial process and the rule of law in the United States by blocking congressional oversight, by blocking uh, the, 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 the ability of the special counsel to do what they needed to do um, be, by keeping people from testifying or by um, uh, lying to people who testified, according to Mueller, uh, so that when Mueller actually did his investigation of the collusion side of this thing, um, uh, he said he, he couldn't draw a conclusion in part because of the information that was kept from him. Uh, and then subsequent to that, Barr has systematically in a variety of instances quashed investigations. We, we, we don't know, but it seems like everything that the, the Justice Department was doing on, around, or about Trump has slowed or stopped. We, you know, we, we, now, you know, we, we, there, there may be something else. There may be, you know, some other kinds of things, but now we learned, you know, Mueller was not allowed to go look at the financial side of things, and some of these other investigations have been dropped. Um, and, you know, I don't even want to throw the monkey wrench of Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, how that's been handled in there, although I'd be interested if you have any thoughts on it. But one part of this is damage that the Russians have done. But another part of this is damage that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr have done to the way things work, and they have been essentially not effectively challenged by the opposition on that. And that can leave lasting scars as well, no, Ryan? Yes, um, and uh, I think Bill Barr in particular has run a disinformation campaign. In some sense, it's an extension of the Russian disinformation campaign, and his ability to have, I think, fundamentally changed how the public understood the Mueller report by occupying um, 
the field in terms of uh, the interpretation of the Mueller report for the first month, essentially. And uh, others have said, uh, I guess I could name particular commentators, um, but oh, who cares because now we all can judge for ourselves what the Mueller report said. But that's just so, I think that's just really misunderstanding how information warfare works. Um, and it's very difficult to unwind what was created uh, by Bill Barr in that, in that way. And then um, Mitch McConnell, I think, is I think is perfectly correct to identify them as this kind of triad. And it is there's some degree to which also the elected Republican uh, members of Congress have incredibly uh, caved on this as well. There's if I were to try to find my own like level of optimism in terms of where we are as a country and the partisanship nature of the way in which there's been this coalition around uh, the president. Uh, the Repub uh, this the, you know the group of Republicans for the rule of law that uh, Bill Crystal is uh, in part behind is now bringing out these television advertisements. I believe they started this Wednesday on Fox, uh, running uh, regularly about Mitch McConnell blocking election security legislation, and it's unbelievable that he's actually blocking uh, bills that are being put forth by Republicans like the Honest Ads Act and the uh, Mark, uh, Marco Rubio uh, Deter Act. Um, I, I think we should deter Marco Rubio, for sure. <laughs> that's so, that's right. probably not the purpose. Of yeah, that. but it's, uh, so maybe there's some glimmer of hope in that um, initiative and in terms of uh, people putting country above party, but otherwise not. Um, and I think, that, I think it's right to identify that the threats to democratic governance and self-governance come from within. Uh, they don't just, they're not just external in terms of Russian actors and things like that. And on top of that, of course, you have them remaking the judiciary, setting, setting new standards, and quashing the ability of critics to criticize by firing them. Or, you know, I mean, the, the, there's been this chilling effect. Dan Coates goes out and says X, Y, and Z, and Dan Coates gets canned. Right. Well, you know, the next person may say I'm strong, but they're, you know, they're going to think twice. And that that happens as well, um, Rosa. So, I, you know, I, I think Ryan makes a good point here, which is the collusion never stopped. That that what, what you've got is Russian disinformation moving hand in hand with Trumpist disinformation. That sounds about right, uh, David, yeah. Um, I really want to know what the difference is between quashed and squashed, though, as well. Um, well, that's a very uh, lawyerly question to ask. <laughs> well, I've always wondered if there is really a difference. Is squashed just a fancy way of saying squashed? Seems um, to be. Can you think of any nuance where one would not? I mean, you use quashed in a legal sense more than. Yeah, you can quash a subpoena, but you, you, you don't really squash it. But I think it would be better if you could just squash it. Yeah, no, um, squash but... sounds stronger, actually, doesn't it? Because yeah, it, it does. Do... It's, it's a vegetable. You can hit people with it. Um, you can play um, a good but... quash game. Squash, yeah, a game of squash. Qua squash. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, Thank you for adding that. Go on. You're, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> No, I try to inject these these sort of helpful helpful little asides um, in case anybody's getting bored with talking about Trump. Um, um, yeah, you know, I, ha I, mean, I have again, to say we haven't to... talked much about Trump this this past month on Deep State Radio. I'm really trying to limit it, but we do on these Thursday afternoons because it's therapeutic. 
Therapy Thursdays. That's, um, that's <laughs> Therapy Thursday with Ryan <laughs> Goodman. Hi, this is Dr. The... <laughs> Ryan Goodman. I'll take your call now. Yes. All right. Um, um, this is going to work. Yeah, Ryan, I, I have this recurring nightmare. <laughs> what should I do? It involves this. Donald Trump became president. Um, I think there's some it, stimulants it, that <laughs> the president might knows about it's interesting actually i mean this is sorry <laughs> yeah. another aside but it is a trump related aside my, my stepmother is a psychiatric social worker with a with a private practice doing you know individual and couples therapy stuff like that and she she has spoken often about how trump has seems to have inhabited her patients mm. psychic lives you know and the, the 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 number of patients who come in profoundly distressed by something Trump related or they're having terrible dreams about him or so Trump seems to be not only uh, experiencing his own mental illness but but becoming a a cause of extreme mental and emotional distress driving people literally into therapy well but let me <laughs> let me tell you it's not as bad as my ex-wife the mother of my children a otherwise wonderful woman uh, is a social worker is a psychotherapist and she is currently She's doing. She's an otherwise wonderful woman, other than being the parent of your children. No, no, I, 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 I misspoke. But she, she's a great person, uh, and my ex-wife, and she is a therapist, and she runs a podcast on divorce. Uh-huh. And I, you know, just having your ex out oh, there nice. every week, <laughs> doing a podcast. <laughs> It's like, like part of the agreement. It's, part, it's like holy <laughs> shit. But I, fortunately, I'm just not going to listen to it. Although I wish, I wish her well, and I hope it's hugely successful. Um, um, Maybe we could get her on Deep State Radio sometime. Yeah, I'm sure she would be good. We could do a joint, <laughs> joint podcast. We could get all of our exes on together. Wow, that would be that would be yeah. a, that would talk about nightmare. Anyway, um, uh-huh. yeah, um, uh, you were saying something. I interrupted you. Um, well, I can't remember. You were talking first, but, about your. Oh, I. You know, I was going to inject an, another one of my, you know, typically cheery um, observations, which is, you know, none of this should surprise us. This is what we know about how craven humans are. We, I mean, we all. It's it's natural to feel that sense of surprise emotionally, but intellectually, you know, again, you know, look look at look at any of the great uh, moral catastrophes of of humanity. Holocaust, you know, Rwandan genocide, you name it. And, and they are stories of craven complicity. Um, you know, they are stories of a small number of people who are actively and aggressively, you know, psychopathically evil. And a very, very large number of people who aid and abet because they're too damn cowardly to do anything different. And, and you know, the the... the the purpose of the famous uh, uh, experiments Stanley Milgram at Yale conducted um, in the 1960s, uh, I think starting the late 50s, actually, through the 1960s on these electric shock experiments. His original impetus for conducting these experiments uh, was that he was so baffled by the Holocaust and the degree to which seemingly Mm. ordinary Germans uh, would go along with this terrible atrocities uh, he he thought his hypothesis was that it was because Germany was an extremely authoritarian culture, and he intended in his experiments to to demonstrate that by doing experiments in the United States. He thought there would be in Germany there was a sort of naturally higher level of obedience to authority because it was inculcated in people 
from birth, and that's why people were so willing to go along with with mass slaughter. Whereas in the United States, he thought to himself, uh, you know, the, he, he said, you know, we are a nation that is built on traditions of independence, resistance to authority, you know, deep tradition of you know rights and freedoms and so forth. And so you wouldn't see such a high level of obedience here in the United States. And of course, you know, what happened is is famous and, and depressing. Uh, the experiments he conducted uh, found that all it took was a white lab coat to turn ordinary Americans uh, into people willing to administer electric shocks to the point that they believe would cause you know, organ failure and death to complete strangers, um, that there was no difference, that, that his hypothesis was dead wrong. Uh, cultures of obedience to authority, cultures of so-called independence and freedom, there, there was no discernible difference in the uh, rate or degree to which ordinary upstanding people um, would quickly, with, with astonishingly little encouragement, become complicit in, in outright evil. So, you know, in that sense, there's nothing, none of this should surprise us, you know, that we're being reminded of something that intellectually we, we should already know from, from history, from social psychology, from anthropology, uh, which is it, it, it takes remarkably little to take people of, you know, ordinary strength of character and turn them into complete monsters. And if you don't even start out as having ordinary strength of character, and I'm not entirely sure Mitch McConnell ever had ordinary strength of character, uh, it takes even less. I think there's a lot of evidence that he, he, he never had strength of character. He was always believed, you know, selling himself out one way or another. There's a n number of articles that have come out even this week um, suggesting that that's the case. That is as, as depressing as you've gotten, Rosa, I mean, short of apocalypse, which you bring up every other week, but um, uh, uh, because it's, you know, it strikes a resonant chord, Ryan. I mean, I, you know, you sort of look at what's going on, look what's going on at the border, look what's going on, happened in Puerto Rico, look what has happened with racism from the president, look at um, uh, what's happening with regard to you know, sort of despoiling the environment. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of things happening right now. And people are kind of like, yeah, I'm cool with that. Now, 40% of Americans or 35% actively support it. But I think we also have to look at the other 65 or 60% and say, they're not stopping it. They're not, you know, there are 1.7 million people in the streets of Hong Kong last weekend, not New York City, mm. not Washington. Um. Yes, though, um, he's pretty, the president is pretty awful in his, his polling. Like, this is one of the weakest presidents ever. And, and, and all he has is his base. And he doesn't have anything more than that. Um, and uh, 60, you know, something like, what is it, 53% of people around that number say that they will never vote for him uh, for re-election. Uh, 53, yeah, 53. Yeah, yeah, 53. There's a 60% on um, some, uh, on other, and then and 40% of Republicans. That's the sort of strongly opposed. Or yeah, better. or there's also, I think, a 60% that think he doesn't necessarily deserve re-election as well. Yeah. There's another number out this week. Um, so there's some positive parts of that. But, I, but what Rosa also describes with respect to the cadre of people around him and in leadership positions, I worry about a lot. And people who have uh, certain kinds of internal weaknesses. So it's not even, as, as Rosa says, it's not necessarily people of ordinary um, rectitude, but weaknesses. 
Rod Rosenstein comes to mind as a kind of a weak individual that's used by this organization of power, system of power. And I also think one of the other things that we're living in is uh, a moment in which the president, if he does have one of his strengths, he's, a, he's in many weaknesses, one of his strengths is understanding the weaknesses of others. And he uses that. Um, he smells it in a certain sense. Um, so I think his ability to exploit the weaknesses of politicians because he knows what drives them, uh, the way in which he uh, turned um, uh, has turned various politicians um, in that way. Mitt Romney, I think of as a great example of that, giving a powerful speech about what was wrong with Trump as the candidate, and then getting that, and then Trump turns him completely around into this weakened individual in that photo, you know, perfectly framed photograph at the dinner uh, table in which Mitch, in which uh, Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney's coming there it seems like uh, groveling for a job in the, in the Trump administration. So I think it's this combination and, and uh, that worries me a lot. And it also there's a piece that was written by David Luban uh, a couple of years ago titled something like, It Doesn't Matter Who Rachel Brand Is, uh, because the point was if she were to succeed um, Rod Rosenstein at that time, the psychological evidence says that this is what happens to individuals. And he was also drawing from the uh, situationism, uh, so, uh, social psychology uh, literature to say people might come in and you might think you know who X person is or they might think they know themselves. But once in that kind of environment, uh, they are not who their former identity was. Um, they really do get shaped by this and, and, and they lose certain kinds of uh, an anchor or perspective. And I, and I worry about that a lot. So we've got to wrap this up. I'm really enjoying this uh, conversation. Okay. I'm, I'm, that I'm, means you're really a masochist. Yeah. I'm, 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 yeah. I, I was trying to think of how I could characterize that accurately. I, but um, I want to end with a question for you, Rosa. We almost never on this show or our other Deep State Radio shows get into real discussions of pure politics. Um, uh but I, but I want to give you an opportunity here. We are the end of August 2019, five and a half months from now or so, the first primaries will be taking place. The Democratic Party has still more candidates running for president than ran in either party in the last presidential election added up. Um, most of them have no chance of winning. Um there seem to be a couple of sub stories there where, you know, Biden isn't leading by a lot. Elizabeth Warren, I think, has run the campaign of the year so far by coming from no place to essentially being the next most likely candidate. There are a couple others who are still in there. Um, but maintaining your tiara of optimism hat, um, you know, based on the data that Ryan just talked about, the Democrats should win this handily. How do you think they'll screw it up? <laughs> oh god um, <laughs> um oh it i can't I'm, i don't even want to answer that i i, I feel i feel like it's bad luck <laughs> to start listing the possible ways they could screw it up somebody you know a divine power will hear me and will make it make it real somehow um i i i 
I'm not even sure I think it's that the Democratic Party will will screw it up, I'll, although I think it's totally possible. I, so, 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 OK, so I'm not going <coughs> to not going to tempt fate by talking about how the Democrats are going to screw it up. But but as a as a party or um, but let me mention another actor that I think is going to contribute to screwing it up, whether they screw it up sort of fatally for Democrats or not. I don't know. I, I sure hope not. And that is the media. I, you know, I do think that the 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 media culture and obviously, you know, in some sense or another, we are all part of it or have been part of it or uh, um, is is a, it remains in the main in the so-called mainstream liberal media, as well as in less reputable outlets. It remains a kind of, you know, gotcha. It bleeds, it leads culture, which means that, for instance, every time Joe Biden says something dumb, um, it becomes three days of, you know, top stories on television, news, the Internet, the New York Times, you name it, um, on, you know, oh, is this going to sink Joe Biden? Boy, I bet people are probably thinking that he's a real bozo for saying this. This is probably going to hurt him. This is probably going to hurt him. And they find, you know, they, they find six people on the street who say, well, I used to like Joe Biden. This could really hurt him, you know. And the same is true for the other candidates, you know, who, who their own Achilles heels are are, are are somewhat different than Biden's. But, you know, whatever it is, it's it's Pete, it, Mayor Pete screws up uh, in, in South Bend in his response to the police shooting. Um, you know, somebody else screws up somewhere else that the you know, the tendency is for there to be this, you know, kids chasing the soccer ball phenomenon in which any misstep no matter how minor, will result in days and days of stories about whether this, how big is this misstep, will it be fatal? Um, and that is partly driven by the so-called liberal media's conviction that, that they need to do this to, quote, be fair, because they're paranoid about being perceived as the liberal media, um, and so they have to be critical of everybody. Um, and it's partly just driven by, you know, it fuels ratings. People are more likely to, you know, read a story or, or listen or watch a story um, that suggests that, oh, this time, you know, Joe Biden has really made a fatal error. Or this time, whoever has really done whatever, you know, whatever terrible thing and it's going to destroy everything. Or this time, the Democrats are really so much infighting that they're going to destroy themselves. And often, you know, it, it, cre it does create its own reality. You know, it's not it's not intentional on their on the part of most of the media outlets or journalists who cover politics is not it's not intended to hurt the the Democratic Party. And it is it is by and large true that the majority of uh, writers and reporters and editors at, at the sort of mainstream media outlets do lean liberal. Um, you know, so so it's sort of the opposite of what on some level they intend, but the, the nature of the game it creates incentives for them to cover things in a manner that I do think is really hurtful to these candidates overall and could hurt the Democratic Party pretty severely. I mean, I'm going to I can't stand reading any more articles about how, you know, infighting is going to destroy the Democrats. You know, it's not clear to me that infighting is going to destroy the Democrats. I, You know, you could spin that really differently. You could you could spin that as wow, isn't it great that there are such lively debates within the Democratic Party? And isn't it great that there are visible candidates and public figures who are outlining radically different approaches uh, to, to 
policy problems, you know, that 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 is a possible spin for the exact same things that almost entirely get spun as, oh, look, bitter Democratic insight fighting. Is this going to destroy the party or push away centrists or something like that? You know, and, and, and these things, as I said, they do create their own reality. And I, I worry about that more, frankly, than I worry about the Democratic candidates or the Democratic Party as such screwing up. Good point. I could actually, you know, make the case that the Democratic Party has been remarkably unified on most issues, and that if you look at whether it's health care, the environment, or guns, or immigration, mm. or, or any issue, taxes, equality, infrastructure, they're almost all in the same place. The distinctions are, 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 are pretty, pretty nuanced. Um, Unified and quite civil overall. And well. they've been more than quite civil. Sometimes they've, they've been downright friendly to each other. Um, okay. Well, look, I think we've run out of time, but I do want to take 30 seconds before. Don't go away, everybody. You know, keep working out on the treadmill or, <laughs> or, or slicing zucchini or whatever it is that you do while you're listening or, to this show. Drinking. Or squashing people with squashes. Squashing people with squashes or, or drinking. Or squashing them with squashes. Box, box wine, which is, you know the traditional beverage of choice of the deep state radio <laughs> nerd. Um, but, but Ryan, you know, you guys at Just Security do some amazing stuff. And we talk about it sometimes and refer to the articles, but you guys have added some archives that um, are unique resources in, the, in, the, in, the, in this particular moment. And, I, and you just added a new one. I was just wondering if you would take the last 30 seconds of the podcast talk a little bit about what it is yeah so um the this is the brainchild of um andy wright who's a fantastic expert on congressional oversight and basically grew out of his frustration and that's the inspiration for it of trying to find all the congressional documents and even understand this kind of sprawling nature of oversight and the ways in which it happens both formally and informally and behind the scenes and what we've done is, through Andy, uh, created the clearinghouse of congressional documents. So it's a, it is actually trying to be comprehensive of every significant document issued by Congress since November 2016. So it covers Republican leadership as well with respect to Russia-related investigations. And also includes things like uh, criminal referrals, so times in which individual members of Congress or others have tried to use that as a device uh, and it's really interesting to kind of see it all together. It kind of gives us a sense of a benchmark, like where are we compared to some of these attempts by Congress to get information? And uh, it's a kind of a one-stop shop uh, for that information. So we're trying to just provide it as a kind of a resource for the public, for journalists, academics, policymakers, and the like. It's a great resource. Even Rachel Maddow was out tweeting about it uh, today. But Rachel Maddow, I think she really likes you, Ryan. <laughs> Um, she talks about what you guys are doing a lot she's great. and, and she's, she's, she's been very, very supportive of you. And I just encourage people to go there, go to just security. Um, uh, it's a great website. There is great content there every single day. Um, and, uh, uh, it's really, really important perspectives now. And then if you get tired of that, you go to the dsrnetwork.com. We have our own content. We have all these different podcasts, including, um, uh, Deep State Radio, but also National Security Magazine, where we've had these interviews recently with James Clapper and Jake Sullivan and Mike Morrell, and we've got, I don't know, half a dozen more coming up in the next few weeks that are just just first class, um, plus unredacted, plus a lot of other content. So go to those, and while you're there, sign up, become a member, 
do something good for society. It's the thing you should do before the end of the summer. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It's like a latte a month for the the whole big whack. It's much less than that um, for some of the discounted options. Uh, and it enables us to go on and keep doing this. And, and of course, if you're listening now, uh, it's something you must value to some degree. So, you know, be a pal. Uh, anyway, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody. And we'll talk to you again next week on Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.